Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswell.com. All right, come on back and have a seat. Uh, if you're new here, that, that time is our fellowship time where we get to connect with one another, with newcomers. Newcomers get to connect with us and just fellowship together. It's, it's a good, uh, healthy part of a church community. Um, as you come back, I did just want to also highlight one more announcement is that uh, they are looking for helpers for their ESL, for our ESL ministry, English as a Second Language Ministry. Uh, it's bearing fruit, and we're very excited about that. And so if you have any interest in that, Keegan Ronholt uh, is in charge of that. Keegan's right over there with the big beard and the baby carriage. And so if you have any questions or interest, please feel free to talk to him about that. But it's very exciting what the Lord is doing through our ESL ministry. Encourage you to check it out. Well, it's official. Uh, I'm getting old. Um, so uh, a few weeks ago, I changed my cell phone type to large print so that I can see it. Uh, how many of you have reached that, that pinnacle? Yeah, it's a, it's a startling day, isn't it? Um, it? It's become a little bit more difficult to put my shoes on and tie my shoes if I have to do that. That's why I have slip-on shoes. They're so much easier to put on now. Um, and, and finally, because my uh, oldest son is getting ready to go off to college. And this last year, last few years, has been uh, a preparation to send him out, to send him away. Uh, we have visited various colleges throughout the country, gone on campus tours. We have helped him with his prep for the ACT, and he's taking that. We are filling out applications and getting everything ready to send him out. Uh, about two weeks ago, he said, uh, I want some senior pictures. It's fall. It's good to do this. And so that's, that's great. So I said, well, let's try to do it ourselves and see how it goes. And so we went out and we drove around and we took some pictures. And this is one of the pictures that we got from there. And uh, that's my son, Corbin, if you've never met him. And as we're driving around, just like, you know, you're getting kind of emotional. And it's like, man, I love you. Going to miss you. And he's like, yeah, we're going to miss you too. And as we start preparing to send him away, uh, it's kind of scary. And many of you have probably gone through this already, but he's not looking at any colleges in the Green Bay area. Uh, he wants to go hours away to many hours away, which is very understandable. I was the same way when I was his age to go spread my wings. And so uh, he's going to a place where really we can't protect him too much. We can't pamper him. We can't take care of him like we do when he's at home. And so it's very, very scary for Trish and I as we think about sending him away. And as we kind of round this final lap uh, for him going off to college, I think to myself, like, what do I want to say to him before he goes? Like, before he goes off to college, what are, what are the pearls of wisdom that I want to give to him? What do I want to make sure that he knows about? What exhortations do I want to give to him? You know, he's not the only one going off on a great adventure to follow God's calling. All of you are in many ways. Uh, I think of the Bartholomews who are going back to South Africa soon, or 
or just even you who are going back into your neighborhood or your workplace tomorrow with people who may not love Jesus like you love Jesus, or students who are going back to school or sports teams where, where the kids don't know the Lord, and, and God is calling you to go back into this amazing adventure, this, this mission. And the question is, what does God want you to know before you go? And that's what we're going to look at today in Joshua chapter 5. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Joshua 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Red Bible in the seat in front of you, and it is page 180 in the Red Bible. Uh, I want to set the stage for you again because a lot of these things come up in chapter 5. But God delivers Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and brings them uh, up to the promised land of Canaan. They refuse to take it, and so God sends them into the wilderness for 40 years where the uh, generation of men who refuse to take the land by faith die off. Uh, After those 40 years, Moses brings them back to the edge of the land. Moses dies. And then in Joshua 1, Joshua is commissioned to now lead the people in the conquest of the land, to be strong and courageous, for the Lord is with him. Joshua 2, spies go into the land, and they they find Rahab. It's a search and rescue mission in which the Lord promises salvation when judgment comes, salvation to her and her household. And then Joshua 3 through 4, which we talked about last week, God miraculously stops the Jordan River so that Israel can come through the Jordan River into the promised land, which we'll talk a lot more about today. And so let's look at Joshua chapter five, and we're actually just gonna start with the first verse and kind of understand the context before we move forward. So let's look, Joshua chapter five, verse one. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan For the people of Israel, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank that you work miraculously, God. As we sang, you never fail. You have promised them this land, and you are giving your people the land of Canaan, and we're so thankful that you are faithful to your promises. God, as we are often a very busy people, a hectic people, a people always kind of trying to figure out what's on our calendar for the day, what we're going to go do next, pray, Lord, in this moment, as we see in this chapter, that you would help us to be still, to know that you are God, and to know that who we are in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you look at this map up here, uh, Jericho is right here. Um, Israel is in this region right here, about 2 million people, about 40,000 trained soldiers. And they're right here, uh, and this, that, that kind of the leadership is right in this area, right across from Jericho. Now, the Jordan River during this time, we know, was in the flood stages. It was overflowing its banks. It was very wide. It was very much impassable unless you were a Navy SEAL like those spies were. And so the people of Jericho probably felt pretty comfortable. They felt like there was no immediate threat because for the people of God, for these 40,000 soldiers to cross this flooded, rushing Jordan River, they would either have to go up and around the Sea of Galilee or down and around the Dead Sea, and along the way, they would have to fight enemies there as well. And so they were fairly certain that there was nothing that was going to attack them anytime soon. But then God happened, right? God happened. God stops the river from flowing, he holds it up. I think I have a 
picture here of it, just kind of give you a visual image. He stops the river with the, the Ark of the Covenant and the priests, and the two million people pass through to the other side with their 40,000 soldiers, and guess where they camp out? In the plains of Jericho, on their front porch. Could you imagine? <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if you're in your house and like there was a bunch of police just camping out in your front yard? It was terrifying. It says in that first verse that their hearts melted like it was butter because they were so unprepared for an invasion from the Israelites because they were on the other side of the Jordan. It was safe. It was okay. If you know anything about military history, you know that the element of surprise is so strategic, so important to your victory. Israel has it. Israel has surprised them. They are completely unprepared. They are vulnerable. They are kept up in their city. They see these two million people come and all of their fighting soldiers. It is time to take Jericho. But the Lord says, not yet. Before you go, before you go into the promised land, conquer the promised land, conquest the promised land, before you do that, we need to get some things straight. We need to make sure you understand some things. Again, the same things that the Lord is telling his people here in Joshua chapter five, he is telling us today, he's reminding us, hey, listen, before you go and live a mission for me, you need to know some things. You need to get some things straight. And so in this passage, uh, what we will find is that the Lord uh, exhorts us in three ways. He exhorts us to remember whose we are. He exhorts us to rejoice hows we are whose we are. And he exhorts us to recognize what's you are, okay? So whose you are, how's you are, and what's you are. That is the goodest English I got, all right? So first, let's go, before you go, remember whose you are. We're gonna spend the most time on this main point here, and you'll have to think quite a bit, but let's, let's start at verse one again. It says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Verse two, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives. Pause there, Joshua's probably thinking, Sounds good, Lord. Let's make some knives so that we can charge Jericho. Not so. Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath uh, Haraloth. If you're familiar with what circumcision is, uh, you know that there is no way someone can be circumcised a second time. It's impossible. Uh, and so what is being said here is you need to circumcise this second generation. You see, the last time that they applied the sign of circumcision to their children was before the Passover in Egypt. And God is saying, you need to now apply that sign of circumcision to these children before the conquest of the promised land. And here's why. Let's keep reading verses four through eight. It said, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out of Egypt had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt 
had not been circumcised. Now, there's a problem with this because the Lord clearly commands in Leviticus 12 to circumcise all of their sons on the eighth day that they are supposed to do this. Continues, verse six. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Talking about Canaan, the promised land. Verse 7. So it was their children whom he, the Lord, raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. In other words, they were disobedient. The parents were dis- they were supposed to circumcise their children, and they didn't. Verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their place in camp until they were healed, which was probably at least a week. Israel was a speeding locomotive headed right towards Jericho, and the Lord stops them and tells them to take out knives and mutilate their sons to circumcise them, which would leave them vulnerable to attack, as we know from other stories in the Bible. See, this isn't the first time this happens. After the Lord calls Moses to come back to Egypt to free Israel from slavery, Moses is traveling back and he is at a lodge at the night and the Lord actually seeks to put Moses to death. We read about in Exodus chapter four, verse 24, it says this, says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him, Moses, to death. It's crazy. Why? Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, who was not raised in Israel, she was from outside, took a flint, uh, same stone that Joshua uses, and cut off her son's foreskins. Not Moses's, but her son's, who Moses failed to do. And touched Moses' feet with it. That's weird. And said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. In the verse 26, so he, the Lord, let him alone. The Lord let Moses live after Zipporah, his wife, circumcised his children. Can you imagine Zipporah's conversation with her sons? Like, hey, daddy's sick. I think I know how I can heal him. Snip, snip. Come on, let's go, right? Like, that just would have been weird. Why does the Lord stop Israel from taking Jericho to circumcise him? Why does the Lord almost put Moses to death until his children are circumcised. Why is this such a big deal to God and such a little deal to these people? Well, we have to go back a little bit further in the story to Genesis chapter 17. And this is God making a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 17, the Lord says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And then here's the Lord's first and best covenant promise. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Do you see that? The Lord is saying, this is whose you are. You belong to me. It says, and I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourney, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Again, remind them whose they are. And so this is half a millennium later after this promise is made. They are about to fulfill this promise, or God's about to fulfill this promise to give them the promised land of Canaan. 
And he's reminding them of this covenant. Verse 9 continues, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. And so what is the part of the covenant that they are supposed to keep? There's only one. It's not that hard. Here it is. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign. Remember that word, a sign. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You know, what does a sign do? If you think about it, when you see a sign, it points you to a greater reality. And so if you go in the atrium and you see the sign for the bathroom, don't stop at the sign. Go to the greater reality, right? Sign points to something that is even more important. And what God goes on to say in the rest of this chapter to Abraham, he says that you should circumcise every male eight days old, and this is an everlasting covenant. It should last forever. And that any uncircumcised male has broken my covenant and should be cut off from his people. And so why is it in Exodus 4 and Joshua 5 that God is so serious about applying the sign of circumcision, this covenant sign, to his children before conquest, before liberty, before they get freedom from Egypt, before they conquer Jericho. And it's because God wants them to be reminded of whose they are, of who they belong to. Let me illustrate it this way. When Trish and I got married, as many of you do or will do or have done, we exchange covenant signs, these wedding rings, okay? These are covenant signs. And we did this as a reminder to ourselves and to one another that we belong to one another. But more than that, we also have these covenant signs on to proclaim to the rest of the world, hands off, right? She belongs to me and I belong to her. We belong to one another. Now, if my wife was going on a ladies weekend to Vegas, which she would never do, it's comical to think about, but if she was and she decided, I'm going to take this sign of the covenant off and put it on my dresser, I would have concerns, right? I would be righteously jealous for my wife's love and devotion because her placing that covenant sign, the ring aside, is placing our covenant aside, is placing our relationship aside. For Israel, the covenant sign was circumcision, saying, we belong to the Lord. That we are committing ourselves to the Lord. And God is saying, no, you're not going into this conquest without the sign of the covenant upon you. I want you to remember whose you are, and I want everyone else in the entire world to know whose you are. That you belong to the Lord. Now, how does this apply to us today? Remember, circumcision was a sign of an everlasting or forever covenant between God and his people, a covenant of grace, a promise of his presence with them. And so why, when we get to the New Testament, does the apostle Paul say that circumcision is no longer necessary, that you no longer need to be circumcised? If God says it's everlasting, then then why does Paul say, don't worry about it? Well, it's because the sign of the covenant has changed. To, to, To usher in the new era of the gospel, it has changed from circumcision to baptism, which we celebrate today in the church. Colossians 2 puts it this way. It says, In him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. And what is the circumcision of Christ? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Circumcision was an Old Testament sign of dedicating their children to the Lord and dedicating themselves to the Lord. While baptism is the same sign in the New Testament with a new era of the gospel of grace. You know, if you've been here and you've wondered why in the world does Jake as well baptize babies? If you thought, this is a great church. It's a perfect church except the fact that they baptize babies. Why in the world do they do that? And I hear that all the time. A lot of you are like, yeah, I don't get it. This is why. This is why we do it. Because what we see in the Old Testament is God says, apply the sign of the covenant, not just to you, but to your household. And then we get to the New Testament and, and circumcision becomes baptism. And what we see is not only are believers baptized, but so are their households as well. It is a way that we dedicate ourselves and our children and our family to the Lord. Now, I know we don't all agree on this and that's okay. But what we can agree upon is that baptism should not be taken lightly. Baptism is commanded by the Lord, that you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but you do have to be baptized to be obedient if you're faithful to the Lord. God stops Israel's procession towards Jericho because the Lord wants them to apply the sign of the covenant so that they will not forget whose they are. They belong to the Lord. And so friends, in a little bit, either 20 minutes or half hour, hour, whatever, you're going to leave this church building and you're gonna go back into your mission field. And what the Lord wants you to remember is whose you are. You do not belong to the world. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to the Lord. That's the first thing the Lord exhorts them to. Circumcision, that they might be reminded of whose they are. Secondly, and this gets a little bit shorter, rejoice how's you are. Rejoice in how you are, whose you are. It'll make sense in a little bit, I think. Look at verse nine. It says, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Now, what is the reproach of Egypt? Not quite certain. Uh, what I think it probably is, is, uh, you know, Israel leaves Egypt and then they end up in the wilderness for 40 years eating bread. And so Egypt was probably saying, oh yeah, good for you. Out of, you know, was out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? Like, like, like it, look at your God. Doesn't look that impressive to me. You're wandering in the wilderness like nomads. Doesn't look that great. But now God is going to give them the promised land and the reproach will be taken away. And so if you're here and, and there are people who mock you because of your faith, family or friends or coworkers, where it might be, there is a day where the Lord will remove that reproach. When Christ returns and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, in that day, your faith will be proven to be right and true. Continues verse 10. It says, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month and the evening on the plains of Jericho. Uh, this is probably the first Passover they've actually kept since they left Egypt. This was an anniversary meal that they were supposed to keep on a yearly basis to remember and to rejoice in the salvation that God has given to them. I, do you remember that 10th plague that happened in Egypt? We read about in Exodus chapter 12, it says this, it will be on the screen for you. This is Exodus 12, that 10th plague. 
you could put up on the screen there for me, Exodus 12. Thank you. There we go. This is what happens. It says, for, this is the Lord speaking. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. Again, there's that word sign again. A sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And listen closely. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Why is it that the Lord commands Israel to keep the Passover throughout the generations forever? Because the Lord wants them to remember and to rejoice that death has passed over them, that God has given them salvation, that he has brought them out of slavery into freedom and into the promised land. Think of it this way. Every year we celebrate the 4th of July. And the reason we do this is both to remember and to rejoice. We remember Everything uh, that, that those who have gone before us have done, those who have laid down their life for our freedom. But we also rejoice that we are now free, that we are a free nation. Passover is their Independence Day, a day of remembering and rejoicing when God had freed them from 400 years of slavery and set them free by the blood of the Passover lamb, that death had passed over them. Now, once again, In Exodus 12, they're told to keep the Passover forever, right? Like it's not supposed to end. And so why don't we celebrate the Passover meal here at Jacob's? Why don't we gather together and have this huge meal uh, for Passover? Well, it's because the Passover Egypt went through was pointing to a greater Passover for the people of God. Just before his death, Jesus gathered his disciples for that final Passover meal, And much to the surprise of the disciples, as Jesus holds up the bread, he doesn't point to the Passover back then, but he says, this is my body. That's weird. This is my body given for you. I'm sure they paused, looked around saying, Jesus is getting this wrong, right? But he wasn't. This is my body given for you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, that old Passover was pointing forward to the greater Passover. And just as circumcision had become baptism in Christ, so the Passover meal has become the Lord's Supper in Christ. And so every Sunday, we celebrate the Passover meal. We remember what Christ has done to purchase our freedom, and we rejoice in the salvation that we have. Now, as a tangent, because I get to ask this question a lot, why, people will ask, why do you need to be baptized before you take the Lord's Supper? And by the way, this isn't just a Jacob's Well thing. This is pretty common in any church that has a history that you have to be baptized before you take the Lord's Supper. Well, first off, if you see in our passage today, the Lord stops them to give the sacraments of the Old Testament, baptism and I'm sorry, circumcision and the Passover meal, right? And circumcision precedes the Passover meal. But this is actually explicitly commanded by the Lord himself. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, it says this. It says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. 
See, just as a Passover meal was only for those who were circumcised, dedicated, committed to the Lord, so the Lord's Supper is only for those who have been baptized and committed to the Lord. To give a human illustration of this, before a couple enjoys the repeated communion of the marriage bed, they are to first partake of a single covenant ceremony in which they pledge themselves to one another with the covenant signs of ring. In the same way, they repeated communion of the Lord's Supper again and again after that singular sign of circumcision was put upon them. And so in the same way, we say, hey, if you are a baptized believer, trust in Christ, come and be nourished. But for those who aren't baptized, please don't take of it today because this is what the Lord commands us. All right, back to our passage. Verse 11, a tangent, but I think a helpful tangent. Verse 11. And the day after the Passover, on the very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna, which God had been providing for them for 40 years, ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The Lord had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. They had brought back huge clusters of grape. And now the Lord was allowing them to enjoy the riches of his salvation, the bounty of his grace. It is the same for the Christian today. We get to enjoy the riches of salvation, whether that be God's mercies who are new every day or his grace, which is unconditional. We get to enjoy the riches of a church family, which I think we realize how important it is during the time of COVID. We get to have the certainty of the hope of heaven. And there are so many more riches in Christ that are ours in him. And so just to recap, Christian, as you leave the church today and head into the world to fulfill God's calling, before you go, first, remember whose you are. You belong to the Lord. Secondly, remember why you are whose you are. And it's because of the great Passover lamb. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has died on your behalf and has shed his blood so that death may pass over you, that you might be brought to life into a relationship with the Lord today and for all eternity. Finally, we're called to recognize what you are, okay? And just to warn you, this is one of the coolest stories in the Bible, and uh, I could have spent an entire sermon on this, but it's worth diving into more after the service if you choose to do so. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, probably doing some reconnaissance, looking at the city, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in hand. A a drawn sword would be alarming. It would be like someone who draws their gun, right? It's scary. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries. In other words, are you on our team or are you on their team? And he said, no. (laughs) Nope, neither. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. As a commander of the Lord's army, when Joshua asked who team, whose team he's on, we expect him to say, I'm on your team. I'm on Israel's team, the people of God's team. I'm on your team. But that's not what he says. He says, no, or maybe your Bible says, neither. I'm not on your side or their side. 
I've shared this illustration before, maybe even recently, I can't remember, but it's such a fitting illustration. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was asked if he thought God was on his side. The obvious answer is yes, he's on my side because I'm fighting chattel slavery, which is a horrible evil. But Lincoln responded, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. See, Joshua did not know who he was talking to, so Joshua was asking the wrong question. Joshua was asking, are you on our side, when really Joshua should have been asking, am I on your side? Am I doing, Lord, what you are calling me to do in this moment? Am I following your calling in in my life? Am I leading the people of God as you want me to do? Joshua should have been asking if he was on this man's side, because this was no ordinary man. This is the commander of the Lord's army. This is the Lord of hosts, who was not on Jericho's side, wasn't on Israel's side, but was on the side of the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth. It continues, it says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? That's the right question to ask. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Who is this commander of the Lord's army? Who is it that receives Joshua's worship? Who is it that utters those familiar words from Mount Sinai that the Lord God himself had said, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Who could this be? Could it be an angel? Could it be an angel of the Lord? It couldn't be. The Jews were monotheistic. They only worshiped one God. They did not worship angels. Even when we get to Revelation chapter 22, we read this. As John bows down to an angel that he sees, it says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brother, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God, right? There's only one person you should worship. You should worship the Lord God. And so who is this commander of the Lord's army? Well, our students learned this at Lake Lungern Bible Camp last week. This is what's called a Christophany, in which it is the second person of the Trinity, who has come in human form. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus who has come into the world to fight a battle for his people, to win the victory on their behalf in accordance with the will of the Lord God. And of course, this was not the last time he would come. The next time he would come again in the form of a baby, to fight and win the ultimate battle, not by wiping out Jericho, but by being wiped out by the wrath of God for our sins upon the cross and then raising on the third day to give ultimate victory over Satan, sin, and death, which will now pass over those who wear the blood of the lamb upon them. Joshua knows this man is the Lord God in the flesh. And so if Joshua, the most powerful man of Israel, and, and, and the angel identifies themselves in this way. I am a servant of the Lord. That's what Joshua says. That is what the angel says. I am a servant of the Lord. What does this mean about you? What does this mean about what you are? It means that you, Christian, yes, you are a child, but you are a servant of the Lord God. 
You know, we often get this mixed up. We often think God exists to serve us, don't we? <laughs> Instead of realizing that we exist to serve God. I mean, imagine if you went out to a restaurant, to a fancy restaurant, and you're sitting there, you're looking over your menus, and the waiter comes up and sits down next to you at your table and turns to you and says, I would like some ice water, please. I would also like uh, the chicken cordon bleu. And for dessert, I would like a brownie with ice cream. You would sit there stunned and they'd be like, chop, chop, come on, go and get my stuff. He said, no, no, that's not how this works, right? But how often do we treat God like a waiter or a waitress? Like, hey, Lord, uh, I'm going this direction. Please give me this, give me that, give me the other thing, right? It's good to give God the desires of your heart to share those things. But he is not primarily your servant. You are his servant. You are a servant of the Lord. You are not a servant of your sin. You are not a servant of the flesh. You are not a servant of the world. You are a servant of the Lord. Joshua himself puts it this way at the end of Joshua. I know we've been jumping around a lot, but these are really helpful verses. In Joshua 24, 15, Joshua says this, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. In other words, you will serve someone. Service is not an option. The question is, who will you serve? Whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Christians, as you walk out the doors of the church today, as you go into the world to fulfill that great and wonderful mission that God has on your life, who will you serve? Will you serve the God of financial comfort? Will you serve the God of popularity or of pleasure or of romance or of vocation or of achievement or serve the God of family? Or will you serve the Lord? Choose this day, today, whom you will serve because God has not called you to serve anyone else but to serve him above all. Let me end with this. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we're getting ready to send my son, my oldest son, off to college here in less than a year. About 27 years ago, I went on that same journey. I went off to college. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis and went to the University of Missouri, uh, who won last night over Kentucky. It was great. And uh, anyways, I, I got there, and I, I know I've shared this with you before. I kind of run out of stories, but that first semester was a very rough semester. I had joined a fraternity house and, uh, and we didn't get a lot of sleep. I don't do well without sleep. We did a lot of cleaning. We did a lot of cleaning. We did a lot of, you know, uh, designated driving. We did a lot of that stuff, but we didn't do a lot of sleeping. And so my grades were very bad that first semester. I got a 1.4 GPA um, out of 4.0, just in case you're wondering. And uh, it, it was not good. And so that second semester, there was just a lot of weight to perform, a lot of weight to, like, get my grades up so that I could stay in college, so that I could get a job after college so I could stay part of my fraternity house so I wouldn't be humiliated before my family and before my friends by failing out of college. There was all this weight. And yet I, I still remember walking home from the library late at night and it's dark out, like 10 o'clock at night. And I'm walking down these really dark streets back to my fraternity house and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to worship music. I had just become a Christian. And for the first time in my life, as, as I faced this huge trial in my life, I realized whose I was. That, that whether I stayed in college or failed out of the college, I belonged to the Lord. That was unchangeable. That's whose I was. And I also realized, I also realized 
that the Lord was ministering to me through the Holy Spirit. And not only did I belong to him, I realized what he's done for me. That he loved me so much that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, for me, to rescue me, to save me to himself. And I knew what I was. I knew that I was going to be a servant of the Lord. Whether I was in college or out of college, whether I was a plumber or a pastor, I would be a servant of the Lord God. Christian, as you go on your mission, the Lord has stopped you today. And he has wanted to remind you of whose you are that you belong to the Lord, that you can rejoice in the salvation that you have in Christ and that you can go out not as a servant of the flesh or of the world, but as a servant of God himself. Let's pray. Lord God, I I think of that saying that we are human beings, not human doings, and yet I am so often a human doing. I'm just going, 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 trying to do stuff, be productive, give output. Thank you for this time today to be reminded of who we are in you, that we are your child, that we're your beloved, that we belong to you, that we are your servants, that we are redeemed. God, may we remember that identity as we go and fulfill the mission you have called us to. Lord, as we turn to your table now, like the saints of old in the Old Testament, We remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and we rejoice in the salvation that we have by our ultimate Passover lamb. And so nourish us through this meal, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, this is pointing to the final Passover meal, which was with Jesus, where he turned it into the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate as a Christian church today. And as we had mentioned, if you're here today and you haven't been baptized, if you've not played this, applied the sign of God to your life, this meal isn't for you yet. We are so glad that you're here, but we ask that you would wait until you are baptized, until you profess faith in Christ as your Savior. We'll have several elders and deacons set up throughout the sanctuary. When you're ready, please go and take the elements, bring it back to your seat, and partake together as the people of God. Thank mm-hmm. you.